Hello, and welcome to the Christian Formation Podcast. My name is Gabriel, and today I'm joined by my friend Andrew Rutten and uh, my friend from across the pond, Peter Nicholas, who is a co-minister at a church called Inspire St. James Clerkenwell, which is in the heart of London. And today we get to talk about nationalism. I've asked Peter to write um, a blog about uh, the biblical, I guess, expectancy of nationalism, like what it means in relation to who we are in Christ and how we should think through, um, uh, I guess, the role our culture and country play in our lives. And so I'm super excited to introduce you to him. Um, He's been a great influence on my life, and uh, I hope that he can be um, in yours. Also, uh, a disclaimer, the audio on this is a bit staticky, um, but the content is good if you can look past that, um, I assure you. And so I've done my my best to clean it up, um, and so I hope it's not too much of a distraction, but I trust that that you'll glean something from this conversation. And so uh, let's give him a call up, and we'll see uh, if we can catch him. I hope so. <laughs> Hello? Okay. Peter. Peter, can you hear me? I got you, man. Hey. Oh, great. How are you? I'm good, buddy. How are you? I'm good. Um, I'm here with my friend Andrew. I don't know if you can hear us both. Andrew, can you say something? Hey, Peter. How's it going? Hey, I can hear you. Hi, Andrew. Oh, perfect. Hey, thanks for calling in and uh, and talking with us today. You're welcome. How's my background noise here? Is it too noisy or is it okay? No, I can. I don't really hear too much at all. Um, good. It's a it's a quiet coffee shop. Okay. Well, good. Um, well, yeah. Thank you for writing um, the the article on nationalism for us. We really appreciate it. Um, and I think you're one, welcome. Thanks for asking me to write. I enjoyed writing it. Yeah, I think um, uh, one thing you'll have to clarify for us, though, is uh, like why is tea such a big deal for the Brits, and why was that such a, I guess, a cultural phenomenon for us to kick it into the, to the the sea, so to speak. Why is Brexit such a big cultural phenomenon? No, no, no. Actually, Peter, should I should I call you just from my phone? Would that be easier if I called you from FaceTime? Maybe. No, I'm hearing you. I just missed that last bit. No. Okay. I just missed that first bit. Yeah, yeah. No, why is tea such a big deal to Brits? I think... <laughs> <laughs> tea, it's an institution. It's not just a drink. Tea is an institution. And um, there's a lot of... Um, and interestingly, it's, a, it's an institution that crosses cultural and class boundaries. So if you're a... A, um, a builder or a you know mechanic type thing, then you have so-called builders' tea, which um, you know is uh, is just kind of staple diet of your working men and women. And then if you're um, a bit more posh and a bit more upper class, then you have high tea. So you see, it's a truly egalitarian drink. Though I myself don't enjoy it, I much prefer coffee. But there you go. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, yeah, I, uh, originally we wanted to post this article closer to Independence Day, which is sort of the day when we've separated from Britain, um, but that didn't happen. We're about a month removed, but I still think that it's a timely subject for our church and for, um, yeah, just like 
from where I sit in our current culture moment, I think it's timely to sort of um, sort of ca- uh, take inventory of uh, what you would call the layers of our identity. Um, so from from your perspective, why do you think like nationalism is such a touchy subject uh, for the world at large? I think at the moment that there are some big um, kind of movements going on in the world and um, that are, I think, putting the issues that um, force the uh, kind of the nationalism, um, cosmopolitanism kind of debate, um, you know, right in front of our eyes. So because of globalization and because people are moving around so much more than our urban centers, our cities particularly, but all over the, the countries are becoming places where we're interacting with people from different backgrounds and ethnicities, more and more and that throws up lots of questions it throws up questions of how you get on with one another uh, what is it that makes us different what is it that unites us and um, makes us the same um, and who are we as individuals because if you take for example someone who moves from a country maybe um, when they're very very young um, then you know what is the formation of their identity is their home the place where they were born is their home the place where they currently reside is their ethnicity the primary thing that defines who they are, or is it the language they speak? And all of these issues are being worked out, not only individually, but also socially and politically. Um, and for a long time, I think there was a big drive amongst particularly liberal thinkers to say, actually, that ethnic, cultural, national, uh, race distinctions are secondary behind our kind of global humanity. Um, but I think just recently, descriptively, there's been a bit of a backlash against that towards a more you know, nationality is actually a primary part of who we are and is very important. And that starts to work itself out in more protectionist policies and politics, really. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, and that kind of plays itself out, um, you say in your article, in sort of movements like Black Lives Matter, um, or I guess like within like social movements like Brexit where um, people are, seek, are like kind of seeking to reclaim like their national identity. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I, yeah, I do. I, so I think, I think, um, the, I think those that have been saying for a while that actually we're one big common humanity, you know, that's literally what cosmopolitan is. It means I'm a, I'm a kind of citizen of the, uh, the cosmos, you know, of the, of the whole world. Um, and that's when unites us. The problem with that is that that didn't sufficiently or doesn't sufficiently take into account the deep feelings that people have about their ethnicity and their cultural background and their nationality being a key part of who they are. And they're not people in the whole landing fully comfortable with, um, you know, with uh, so dismissing some of those, um, you know, identity markers. Um, and so there's been this backlash you see in the US with the rise of the alt-right and in the UK with the unexpected vote for Brexit, which is a, a push back on that and saying, no, there is something very distinctive and important about um, our nationality. And so effectively, because these things are rarely nuanced, it has to swing from one extreme um, to the other extreme. And so maybe from a, uh, a more left-wing extreme of cosmopolitanism to a much more right-wing political extreme, as it would be seen in the UK, of nationalism and protectionism. Hmm. So what's kind of your view on some of these movements? I mean, is there value there? Is there good in those? Well, part of the tension, I think, is that, you know, when culture wars take place, life has been going on with this issue, it becomes far too polarized. And you end up with, particularly with some of the problems of social media nowadays, where 
um, social media the way that the feeds work, as you know, people often you know know, but you know don't necessarily always act on the way the feeds work. They're sensational and the provocative gets pushed higher up the feeds and get shared more than the nuanced and the thoughtful. And so, therefore, social media can often fan into flame a very dichotomized, very black and white debate where the issue is not always black and white. And so, in our own context in the UK, um, the, the debate about Brexit became very quickly a very polarized debate that probably didn't do justice to actually the nuance for the vast majority of people. And the debate was basically pitched as um, on the one hand, you've got those who are um, who are for remain, so remaining in the EU, and they were often caricatured by the Brexiteers as being self-interested, middle-class yuppies who are only concerned about their pension pots and uh, and their jobs and didn't really care about the person or the man on the street who was actually feeling the squeeze from immigration. And on the other hand, you had the Remainers caricaturing the Brexiteers as being xenophobic, narrow-minded individuals who didn't get... Um, you know, who are fearful of a wider reality um, of the UK and were threatened by immigration. And, you know, there may be some truth to those characters, but really not very much. And it was just a very polarised, very unhelpful, very destructive debate, really, that was conducted in the UK and is still going on now. So how do you, you know, as a pastor in a local church, I'm assuming, you know, if you take Brexit, for example... Um, I'm assuming there's probably people in your church. As you said, it, it's so polarized. You probably have people on opposite sides. So what's some like practical pastoral like help that you give to your church to help it not be quite as polarized in within the church? Yeah, so we actually did a um, we did a, a session and an evening that we invited the whole church to to actually think about the issue and to pray about the issue and to get the issues on the table and to try to think about it from a, a Christian perspective and try to you know be nuanced about it. And we also did a um, you know, did a kind of a, a slot from up front in the main Sunday service when we um, talked about the different caricatures that were going on and that we were hearing in the culture, but also that unfortunately we were hearing inside, not just at our church, but inside the church in general, and just said, if you're buying into these caricatures, then actually, from a Christian perspective, that's not really listening to your brother or sister, and that's not really giving them the benefit of the doubt, um, and you know that's often um, kind of harboring a grudge in your heart. So encouraging people to talk to one another and give each other the benefit of the doubt. And interestingly, <laughs> on the back of doing that, um, that kind of slot up front, we actually had quite a few people <laughs> offering apologies to one another, because it turned out that, for example, mm. we had one couple who were immigrants from Greece who had not been to church for three weeks because they'd heard that someone at church had voted for Brexit, and they had just assumed that, therefore, that was because they didn't want them in the church. Mm. Um and that wasn't the case at all. When they spoke with that person, the person said, no, no, not at all. You know, my motivations for voting for Brexit were entirely to do with the EU and problems that, um, you know, are clearly happening within the EU. Interesting problems which those from Greece actually shared, but just didn't think they were sufficiently strong. And so it was just helpful to actually stimulate discussion, actually get people talking about it, um, because there was just misdeception was happening even in a small church like ours. That's great. That's great. And um, and that kind of speaks to, I guess, um, what the heart of your article that you wrote talks about um, at getting to like the identity of who you are um, beyond like your nationalistic tendencies or um, your ethnic background. Um, so could you explain that? Like, why is understanding our identity so important to understanding um, nationalism and the biblical view of uh, who we are? Yeah, so one of the things I try to say in the article is that, you know, um, 
uh, identity is like an onion and therefore trying to work out the different layers of the onion is really important. And biblically, I think we, we see that when you build up this picture, you know, kind of systematically from scripture, that you see that there are um, so the right ordering of the layers and getting what is at the core um, right is really important. So um, the core of our identity should always be um, that we're made in the image of God and we are in Christ. Um, and therefore, God is the only one who ultimately can give us the ultimate value, worth, and significance that we require and we need. And, of course, one of the problems of the human heart is that as we turn away from God, we don't turn from God to nothing. We always turn from forming identity in God and in Christ to something else. And that's what idolatry is, is ultimately placing ultimate worth, value, and significance in anything other than God. And so nationalism, for example, is basically making an idol of your national identity. It's replacing having God at the core of your being and saying that my national identity and my nation state is going to be my God. And I mean, functionally speaking, it will determine also worth and value and significance for me. Um, whereas cosmopolitanism, on the other hand, is doing similar thing, but it's just saying that my identity is part of being a global citizen, ultimately. Um, and therefore, anything that comes against that is going to be a threat to me and a threat mm. to my core of identity. And both of those are actually errors, and both of those are idolatry. And the answer for idolatry, biblically, is always to relocate our identity and our ultimate value and significance in Christ. Um, but not only that, once we relocate our value and significance in Christ, then start to get the other layers in the right order as well as what is what the gospel starts to do. Mm. So maybe very practically, somebody, um, you know, a member of the church walks up to you and feels like... Um, Hey, because I'm a Christian, uh, I, I have no. There's no place for my national identity, right? I'm a part of the kingdom of God. That's all that matters. What are the either scriptures or just kind of practical points? What do you push back on that specifically? Yeah, so I think you'd want to, for example, if you looked at the you know Revelation seven and the picture of gathered around the throne worshiping the Lamb. It's not that um, everybody is just one non-distinct. Um, lacking ethnic um, national markers gathered around the throne, rather it's people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So it's really instructive that as these gathered around the throne is are a diverse people from with their ethnic distinctives to their national distinctives. Still, even in the new creation, um, who are worshiping the Lamb, but they're worshiping the Lamb, and therefore they're united in one common orientation of their heart. So that is that they primarily got their identity rooted in the worship of the One who has died to reconcile them and save them. But they also still have their national, ethnic, cultural identity as well. But those are secondary to their, to the primary identity of who they are in Christ. Um, and so I think, you know, in a picture like that is very, is very powerful because um, it helps you to see actually the way that Scripture is, shapes your identity, both what's at the core, but also the layers that come outside that core. So maybe from, from Revelation that you mentioned, what do you think... What are the, the national or maybe cultural pieces that stick with us in the new creation? So, so what do cultural differences look like in the new creation? Is it just that we're still different skin colors, we speak different languages, or, or what does that actually look like when Jesus comes back and we get a new heaven and new earth? Yeah, well, some of this is some of this, of course, is inference, and um, is you know it's tricky because there's metaphor, obviously, in Revelation. Um, a lot of Revelation is in highly vivid language, but they're trying to separate out the, the layers of metaphor from, um, or the you know the picture of metaphor um, from the reality. But 
Um, it's interesting, for example, at Pentecost that um, the God's solution with the Holy Spirit is not to make, is not to suddenly reset humanity to a kind of pre-Babel, we only speak one language, but is actually to rather make it so that people can um, all understand the gospel in their own language. So that, you know, I mean, I think sometimes when people read the Tower of Babel incident, then it would look like, okay, well, if the Bible's trying to reverse the problem of Babel as before, and the Lord's confusing language, surely wouldn't that mean that we all just speak one language? But actually, in Pentecost, the apostles are given the ability to speak many, many different languages and all understand the same gospel. Now, whether that definitely means that in the creation we're going to be speaking many languages, whether it's going to be, I don't know, like a glimpse of a bit like um, Star Trek, that we'll have global translators or something, I don't know. <laughs> it, it is interesting that language, it's an amazing image of a speaking God, language is integral to who we are, it's not just incidental to who we are, and so therefore a key part of our cultural distinctiveness is our language and our expression. Mm. Um, it forms our thoughts and shapes our, you know, our, um, our artifacts and our cultural expressions as well. So... I'm not sure that I would, you know, I would want to go to the stake for this, but it, it seems to me that language is a facet, and whether we'll, you know, by the Spirit, we'll all have the ability to speak different languages and also to understand different languages in the new creation. There seem to me to be hints of that in the Bible, in the way that part of the manifestation of the Spirit of speaking in tongues is that certain people are gifted with the ability to supernaturally or naturally speak a different language, and some people are able to be able to translate that for the education of the whole church. So maybe the outworking of that will be that in the new creation we can all um, speak different languages and understand different languages rather than just we all speak one language. Um, mm. But I also think there will be different, um, all the different things that make up culture, you know, the way that we dress, the food that we eat. Since the new creation will be a new, this creation renewed, those, there will be food, there will be clothes, there will be art, there will be um, all the different um, artifacts and cultural expressions, and they'll, of course, be perfectly redeemed and perfectly good now, but, you know, an African person bringing the joy and the vibrancy and the colours of their culture to the throne of God um, in the new creation will look wonderfully diverse and different to, um, you know, a Spanish person or, you know, a Hispanic person or to a, um, an English person doing it in their own distinctive ways with their own distinctive cultural manifestations. So, with that, a Christian should not be scared of their culture, their nation, the, the things around them, but should engage well if those things last beyond this life and into the new creation. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, right. And, you know, you look at, you know, look at God. You know, we, God from the off is, is a God who clearly loves diversity. He doesn't just make one bird or one fish or one, you know, mammal. He makes, you know, thousands of species of birds. I'm sure if I've done my homework, I'd be able to say how many there are. And they're so different in color and size and form and call and song. And the same with all the animals. So from the very off, when God creates, he creates diversity, but with a unity of purpose. Um, and so therefore, ultimately, I think we need to not see um, culture and cultural manifestations as a threat, but rather as a glorious expression of what it means to be made in the image of a God who is infinitely diverse, as far as the Holy Spirit, three persons, in the Trinity, but also who is um, perfectly united in one common endeavor and one common love and one common heart and will. And so therefore humanity redeemed will be wonderfully diverse, different cultural expressions and ethnicities, mm -hmm. but also united in one common endeavor, one common heart and one common will. And that's not a threat. That's a glorious thing, a wonderful thing. Mm. Um, that's beautiful. And Peter, um, you're in a, in one of the probably the most diverse city in the world, right? So London, 
Um, in 2018, there's probably over 200 languages spoken. Um, how do you, how, like, so you're at a church called Inspire. We probably should have set that up earlier, who you are. Um, but you're a minister at a church called Inspire, um, a co-minister. Um, and how, how do you guys, like, embrace diversity? Like, in a city that has so many cultures in one place, um, how, do you, how do you guys do that? Yeah, so we, I mean, our vision is to be a united and diverse gospel community inspiring London with the gospel. Um, and so, you know, the unity and the diversity we think of that is integral to what it means to be church. And so you're right, we're in a, we're in a city with over 300 languages spoken. Um, and it is, you know, allegedly the most diverse city on God's good earth. Um, and so we try to foster that diversity and that unity as well. So we, fundamentally united around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the thing that unites us. That's the thing we're growing in. That's the mm. thing we're wanting people to grow in individually and corporately to build us up. But also to recognize as we do that, that that works out with different cultural manifestations. And so we want diversity with that. So, I mean, some very practical things that we do is, for example, sometimes when we're praying corporately on a Sunday gathering, we'll say to people, now say the Lord's Prayer in your mother tongue. And it's amazing. That's a small thing, but it makes a massive difference to um, people from different um, uh, cultures, different national backgrounds, just to be able to almost have the release of not having to say the Lord's Prayer in a second language for them, but in their own original language. And we do that at the same time. Or we'll do songs where um, we get the congregation, you know, to sing, for example, one verse in English, and then we'll have um, you know, one verse in Spanish, um, and then we'll go back to English, and then we'll do the chorus again in Spanish type thing. So recognize that Spanish is a language spoken by many, many people um, around the world. And so that's going to, therefore, for some people, be um, stretching. Um, because they might not speak Spanish, but well, that will be a good experience for them. Um, and for some people, it will be um, the moment when they get to sing praises to God in an English London context in their native, um, you know, their native tongue. So, um, and we often talk to people as Inspire. We often say there'll be a 25% um, rule that Inspire. Now, 25% rule is if we're truly being diverse and united, then we expect and minimum um, that 25% of what we do Inspire you won't like. And that's the 25% where we're asking you for the sake of your brother and sister in Christ, who's from a different background into your culture, for you to stretch. Um, and so some people might not like singing a song in a different language they're not good languages, but that's your 25%. That's where you're stretching. Um, you know, some people might not like when we do our big lunch and we have everybody bringing their national dishes together and it's like a, a wonderful expression of unity and diversity. I'm sure some people just prefer if we did a roast beef um, Sunday lunch and say, well, that's your, that's your 25%. But, you know, that's part of what it means to be a Christian is for the good of the whole and the body and for the good of the other is actually to stretch and to welcome the brother and sister in the Lord, even though they're different to you. So we've kind of hit on a little bit of the the value of nationalism, even getting into a little bit of the diversity uh, aspect there. If we could switch to the other side and somebody begins making an idol out of their uh, national identity, where do you turn? How do you kind of help them uh, temper that and getting their hearts so wrapped up in their national identity? Yeah, so I think one of the things is that all of our idols are good things that become ultimate things because, you know, we ultimately lose um, a sense of, you know, how they give us ultimately what we want in Christ. So often that people, I think, you know, turn to nationalistic tendencies um, can sometimes be a sense of a security, um, a sense of um, familiarity. 
um, in a world that's changing fast, they're looking for some kind of solid ground and actually going to the culture of a nation that you know. Sometimes it can be bound up with, like in the UK, a lot of the Brexit debate was focused around money and people who were facing unemployment, feeling that people who were immigrating to the UK were taking their jobs. And so it was going back to economic insecurity. And so one of the ways to deal with that is to get to those root issues of the heart and show people how ultimately our security, our sense of home, our sense of belonging is located in Christ and will never be found in a nation state. And even if we were to completely stop all immigration, that doesn't take away economic insecurity. Only God, who is the one who provides your every need and gives you your daily bread, is the one who can give you the security you crave. So I think sometimes helping people to see how what they're looking for is found ultimately in Christ and then causing, calling them to repent and away from the idol of nationalism, which is a as a pale imitation of what they're looking for and turn to and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who gives them everything they're longing for. Um, so, you know, trying to work that through with people, I think, can be helpful. That's great. Um, so one, one, you make, you make one nuance in uh, your article that I thought was really um, helpful. So obviously anything at the core of our identity is sin. Um, whether it's self or family or nation. Uh, but you also say that there's sort of um, a secondary layer, so to speak, to the, um, to the problem of identity when we upset the other layers too or we misorder the other ones. So if we put like work in front of family, um, could you elaborate on that nuance just a little bit? Yeah, so you know, one of the great insights of St. Augustine was that um, – Sin is not just doing wrong things, but sin is disordered desires. And so ultimately God is love, and therefore the foundational essence of who God is, is you like, if you like, a, a, the, the desire of love and loving the right things. And so Augustine's great insight is we made in the image of God is, therefore we need to love the right things in the right order and in the right way. So sin can sometimes be loving something too much um, or loving something um, above something else. Um, and getting it in the wrong order or not loving something enough. And so that kind of relates to identity. Um, and we kind of get this, you know, because, for example, when people talk about being a workaholic, so one of the practical applications of, you know, or outworkings of, you know, seeing workaholism is often that people will, like, prioritize their work over their family. Now, the very fact that people in the vernacular will kind of raise that and say, hey, that's an issue, you're sacrificing your family and the altar of your work, shows that they have a sense that actually family is more important foundationally to us as human beings and to our identity than work. And they're basically saying, hey, look, you're starting to build your identity on your work over and above your family. That's the problem. So if you like, there's a disordering of the layers of your identity there. So one of the fixes for that is, of course, and one of the things that happens is that as we come to Christ and find identity in him, it doesn't just do that, but also the gospel starts to reorder our hearts and reorder our desires such that we get things in the right order. So we start to see, oh, I've been sacrificed my family on the altar of my work. I need to repent of that and actually need to prioritize my family um, and my um, uh, my family over and above my work, but all with Christ at the core. So actually getting those right orders of layers of your identity is actually a, a key way to be growing godliness and turn away from sin. Peter, if someone's listening to this and they, they're trying to get a grasp in their own heart of maybe how they're viewing their identity in Christ and then their, the further identities that you lay out, what are some, some helpful... Um, pointers to finding those idols in our life. So if somebody's listening 
and they're just wondering, man, do I have my priorities and my identities mislayered and I have this in the wrong order? How do you help counsel someone through what are the markers of that? Or how can somebody kind of start to tell if they have, whether it's simply their identity in Christ and their identity in um, their, their nationalism or anything further that you just mentioned, whether it's with work, family, anything like that. What are some of the ways that we can start to tell if, if we're doing that or if our heart is starting to misorder some of those things? Yeah, I, I wonder if, you know, one of the good starting points is to recognize that as John Calvin, the theolo- Reformed theologian, used to say, the heart is an idol-making factory, and therefore all of us are going to have disordered desires and all of us are going to, at various points in different ways, um, make things ultimate and put them at the core of identity when they're not. Um, for example, a church pastor can easily make his pastoral ministry um, the foundational part of his identity. And in some ways, the better something is, the more likely it is to become an idol. Um, and that's a problem. So therefore, to be constantly on the watch out for it and to be constantly praying. You know, the kind of Psalm 139 prayer is a great prayer to pray because the Spirit loves to, you know, search out those idols, to search me, O Lord, and know my heart, try me, know my innermost thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a great starting point to pray and say, Lord, show it to me. Um, I also think um, cultivating good friendships whereby people can observe you and know you and there's, you give them the right to speak truth into your life. Someone says, you know, you seem to be taking your, your work a bit too serious at the moment and not seeing your family enough. You know, do you mind me asking you? You make it too important. And if you don't have anyone who's a truth teller in your life, I think that's a concern. Um, and then often a really practical indicators of, um, of idolatry can be, um, you know, the, what are your nightmares and what are your daydreams? So what are the things that you really deeply fear and you kind of say to yourself and either in your heart or for external processes, you talk things out with their friends, uh, you know, express anxiety of, you know, I can, I can cope without that, but don't take away that thing. You know, so if people are saying, for example, um, you know, I just couldn't survive if, my, if I lost my family. Of course, it, it would be tragic to lose one's family. But if you're saying, I just couldn't survive without that, then you're, you're making it too important. Um, because truthfully, the, the the one person we ultimately need is, is Jesus Christ and it's the gospel. Um, so, so what are your nightmares? What are the nightmare scenarios that kind of keep you up at night? And those are often associated with our idols. And also, what are our daydreams? So when our mind wanders, you know, maybe unfortunately in a sermon or in a boring work meeting or in a context where we're sitting alone in a in a cafe, like where does your mind wander to? And what are the, the daydreams you start thinking about? My life would be better if I had that, that, that. And they can often, that can often expose your idols as well. So daydreams, nightmares, having good accountability with friends, and, and praying for the Spirit to reveal it as you know, being helpful to me and helpful to others, I think. Yeah, that's very helpful. So praying through it, asking God to reveal some of that to you, having somebody in your life that's willing to point that out, maybe in a, a spot where you can't see in your own life, and then just checking your heart on where, where you're, what you're longing for, what you're afraid of. I feel like those are very, very helpful and uh, easy first steps for, for people. So thanks for, thanks for um, yeah, just kind of helping us process through that. Uh, maybe, maybe a last question from, from my end. Um, you, you talked about the specifically the, maybe the fear or maybe the idol that we have sometimes in, in making nationalism an idol. Maybe the underlying uh, issue there is, is, is security. Um, one of the big things that you talked about with Brexit or, or even here in, in America and in Omaha, um, I, I think that's very true. I mean, I can definitely see that in people, this sense of security. And I think that can play out um, in whether it's just having something to belong to 
uh, whether that's, you know, comes through in maybe immigration issues, like you mentioned. Um, can you, can you speak any more specifically into that or, or just give any sort of advice on how do we fight that desire when it, when it may come out to, um, to kind of specifically maybe in an immigration issue and, and we kind of value maybe the security more than thinking about someone who's in a vulnerable position. How, how would it, how does the gospel help reshape some of that, um, specifically for a person, if it is a, a security type heart issue in idolizing mm. nationalism? So I think this may be helpful to reflect on a good letter to read, or sorry, book to read on this would be the, um, the book of Ruth, um, because I think it's helpful to reflect just how, um, beautiful the picture in the Old Testament was at a time when actually, you know, welcoming the foreign in your midst was something no nation would ever do. Israel was remarkable in that there was actually commands within the Mosaic law to welcome the foreign in your midst and to provide for them, to basically provide a kind of social security for them. And so I mentioned Ruth because you see Boaz doing that for um, Ruth and Naomi um, in the book of Ruth. And it's a beautiful picture there. There's this kind of curious backdrop where you know, there's this almost threat looming over because they're, they're basically Naomi tells Ruth not to thresh in anyone else's field except for Boaz because, and Boaz reaffirms that and says, don't get to anyone else's field. Basically, it's not safe, but Boaz is this godly man who provides for this Moabite woman who's a foreigner in his midst. And so at a time when, you know, other people could have perceived um, a foreigner as a threat or someone draining their economic resources, actually, it's Boaz is understanding that God is a God who loves the foreigner, loves the outcast, and brings them into his family and adopts them and loves them. And it's that view that, you know, implicitly in Ruth changes Boaz's heart and moves him from, you know, uh, from the potential of fear to a place of love and acceptance and sacrificial love for the other and the foreigner in the midst. It's a beautiful, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful books in the Bible, in my opinion, and and there's something very beautiful about that. So I think helping people to move from a position of fear to the attractiveness of a love for the other, for love for your neighbor and not viewing them as a threat. And also, I think, understanding that that is what God has done for each of us. None of us has the right to be called friends of God. We're all outsiders, um, you know, turned away from God because of sin. And yet God loves us and adopts us and pulls us into his family. And so if God loved us like that, who are we to view those we might see as strange or different or foreigners as merely a threat? They're people made in the image of God, and he wants to welcome them to just as he's welcomed us. And therefore, that orientation, that beauty of welcoming the other, I think, is something which wins the heart and changes us, really. And, and what would you say to, you know, if somebody tries to separate uh, kind of church and state a little bit there and say, hey, in the church, we are willing to embrace the vulnerable, the outsiders, but we want to draw a line where that doesn't enter into our politics. And so we can kind of keep some of these issues, whether maybe immigration or just helping the vulnerable in our city. Is there any place to separate that? Or do you think as Christians that has to be somewhat integrated between how we view bringing in the outsider into the church or into the family of God, as well as into our, you know, our nation or our country? Well, like I think in the U.S. context, it is in your, you know, it's in your very <laughs> constitution, isn't it? And we believe that all people are created equal. Um, uh, is you know, it's right there foundationally in your founding fathers' documents, and therefore, just even starting from that um, common standpoint, and you know, that um, uh, that if all people are created equal um, by virtue of being made in the image of God, then that has impact 
expectations for what it looks like to, um, you know, to legislate for the foreign in the midst because the people are equal and equal in dignity and rights. And that is a very Christian foundation from, you know, in, in Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, right, male or female. So, you know, I think if you've got them in your founding father's document, like you wonderfully do in the U.S., then that needs to be worked out at a political level. And I think if I was a U.S. citizen, I would be concerned about any laws being implemented that so obviously go against your founding documents, which the laws are supposed to play out and represent. So we're not even at the moment really coming from just how you answer that from a Christian perspective. We're just coming from this is this the nation, this is who we are, this we've always valued as who we are, and therefore we just need to have integrity with that. Um, but sure, I don't think one can make a clean divide, um, you know, between we legislate one way in the church and one in the um, in the state. To be to be nuanced about it, I do think there needs to be differences there, but it can't be that we, we love the foreign Islamists in the church, but we have protectionist, masteristic tendencies to them outside the church that, um, you know, God's law is good and is right and applicable, um, albeit in nuanced and slightly different ways, but must be applied in all aspects of life, um, not just in the church. So I think I'd be wary about a too neat a distinction between those two. Yeah, that's good. Peter, you are a wise man. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Um, and I think that, um, that this has been helpful for me, um, even to, to think through the idols that I might have misplaced in my identity. Um, and so, yeah, thank you for writing this. Thank you for serving our church in this way. Um, and, yeah. I, we're, we're, You're welcome, mate. It's nice to connect with you and lovely to be able to do it. And it's been helpful for me to think it's really going to be a good window on our own, you know, culture and Brexit and things like that. So I'm grateful for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, can I pray for us real quick um, in our churches? And um, yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Father, we um, we look to you for the source of all truth and meaning and identity. Um, would you show us that in Christ? Would you show us that we, um, as Galatians two twenty say, we, it's no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives in us. Christ is um, the most true thing mm-hmm. about us. Um, and yeah, would you make that um, evident to us through your scriptures, through your church? Um, would Christ be the core of who we are? In your holy name, amen. Amen. Hey, thanks, Peter. This was great to talk to you. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Andrew, very much. That's great. Thank you.